0: glory in Christ's name we pray amen one of the hardest things of sermon writing I don't know brothers if you feel this way too is the introduction it's trying to figure out how to how to introduce the subject that we're going to see in this passage and after brainstorming for a while I decided to write you all a short story okay so this short story is called as long as a man is king. In a kingdom long ago, a family hid under the floorboards of their little cottage. While the parents covered the mouth of their young son so that his whimpers might not alert the gruff men above them, said bandits, oblivious to their presence, ransacked their home. Once the robbers were satisfied with their loot, they mounted their horses and rode off, bearing the proud banner of their kingdom. Back up above, the family dusted off their garments and looked around at their now disheveled home. Were those not the king's men? The young boy asked. That they were, my boy, the father sadly replied. If only the king knew what his knights were doing, lamented the lad. Oh, he knows, said the father. He's the one who sent them. Sent them? Why? I thought him to be a good king. He is sometimes, and other times he's cruel. How can he be sometimes good and sometimes cruel? Asked the boy. Such is the nature of man, the father sighed. People can change from moment to moment. Sometimes the king is benevolent. Sometimes he's selfish. Sometimes he loves us. Sometimes he hates us. Sometimes he's merciful, and sometimes he's ruthless. The boy thought for a moment and asked, what about the promise he made for sharing the spoils of war with all the people to protect us and provide for us? The father looked at him with warm pity and said, son, we cannot trust the word of this king, for his passions and thoughts change like the seasons. As long as a man is king, this is how it will be the end. I forgot to warn you, it wasn't a happy story. But could you imagine being this boy, living under this king? Would you be happy to live in this kind of kingdom? Maybe sometimes, if the king was in a good mood. But even when he's in a good mood, you're, you're always fearful because who knows what he's gonna feel like tomorrow? Who knows what kind of terror he's gonna send upon your household if he wakes up on the wrong side of the bed? Who knows if he will actually fulfill the promises that he said he will do. Thank God that he is not a king like that. He is a king who is always good. He is a king who is always benevolent to his people. He is a king who always loves his people. And he is a king who not only desires to always keep his promises, but always does. Would you be willing to follow a king like that? Well, I got good news for you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that is the king you have. Praise God. God, our king, does what he does because he is who he is. In that story, the king, the evil king, did what he did because he is who he is. He is a man, he was a moody man, he was a powerful and selfish man, and therefore he did what he did. And in the same way, God does what he does because he is who he is. And that's the main point of what we're gonna draw from our passage in Isaiah 44:1 one through eight. We're gonna see this broken down, that God does what he does, and then secondly, we'll look at because he is who he is. So we're gonna take that one at a time, starting with number one, God does what he does. We'll spend just about the same amount of time on number one and number two, even though number two has a lot more subpoints. okay? So first, God does what he does. Let's read verses one and two. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Yeshurum, whom I have chosen, okay? So what we're looking at here in particular is that God does what he does, letter A, he remains faithful when his people do not. There's a lot more that God does than than we see in our sermon today, but we're just gonna focus on two things. And that first one is that he does remain faithful when his people do not. And we're really just drawing this from first, the first words again, but now. But now, like we we saw this in the beginning of chapter 43, and it said, these are delightful words. But now, what preceded, but now, this time. This time, God has just told Jacob, he's told his people, you're supposed to praise me, but you didn't call upon me, oh, Jacob. You have been weary of me. You've grown tired of me, God says to them. You haven't given me your sheep for burnt offerings? You haven't honored me with your sacrifices? It's not like I've overburdened you with the offerings that I require. You you haven't gone out of your way to buy me a fragrant scent because you love me? You haven't satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices? Which we covered last week is, it's really just reflective of their heart toward him. He doesn't need those things. But the the fact that they were unwilling to get those things for God and to present the fattiest part of their sacrifices was reflective of their hardened hearts against him. Instead of sacrificing to him what he deserves, they burdened him with their sins. They wearied him with their iniquities and they couldn't talk their way out of it, right? He offers them that opportunity. Tell me if I'm wrong here. Prove your case and they can't but now, right? But now, in spite of the fact that they were disposed to him in that way, but now here, verse one of chapter 44, oh, Jacob, my servant. What an awesome thing that we see here immediately in chapter 44, verse one, that God still refers to them as his servant. Because they, they certainly were not acting like his servant right? They were hearing, but not hearing. They were hearing, they were were seeing, but they were not perceiving. But still he calls them his servant. To be called a servant in, in the context of the Old Testament, to be called a servant of God is a high honor. We don't often tie servant with a high honor, but consider the people in the Bible who were called servants of God. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, Isaiah, and most importantly, the Messiah. So to be called a servant is a great honor. And God is still saying to them, Jacob, Israel, despite their recalcitrance and despite their hard-heartedness against him, he still says, oh, Jacob, my servant. Why were they his servant? Simply because he chose them. Verse one continues, Israel whom I have chosen. The reason that Jacob and Israel were his servant was because God had chosen them. That's it. They did not deserve to be the servant of God. They were the servant of God simply because God chose them. And by the way, it's very interesting that when people have a hard time accepting this concept of divine and sovereign election and choosing people They usually don't have a problem with God's divinely choosing an undeserving Israel. Isn't that interesting? God chose them simply because he chose them. They weren't deserving of it. He didn't see something lovely about them or glorious about them. He actually saw the opposite and chose them anyway. And verse two says, thus says the Lord who made you. You remember from last week, this this idea since, since God made them, He owns them. He formed them, verse 2, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Thus says Yahweh, who formed you from the womb. God is comparing himself to essentially um, a pregnant woman or a woman who has given birth to a child. We understand this because with a few exceptions that we see today with our very conscience seared world that we live in for the most part when a mother is pregnant and a mother gives birth to a child there is an unbreakable allegiance and connection between mother and child and that's the picture that god is using here i formed you from the womb and i will help you then he says in verse two fear not fear not O jacob my servant Those wonderful words again, don't fear, you are my servant. And then he calls him, jeshurun, whom I have chosen. This word jeshurun is is essentially a nickname that is given to Israel. We see it three times in Deuteronomy, and it essentially means upright, which is ironic because they are anything but upright at this point, right? But still, despite the fact that they were not acting upright, God was referring to them with that tender name of Jeshurun, upright. The name that he gave them, whom I have chosen. So again, this is all in the context of, but now. This is all in the context of their half-hearted and hypocritical worship of him and their ongoing sin against him. And this is something that they needed to hear, that he remains faithful even when his people do not. Is this something that you need to hear today? Remember from last week, we we covered this. We're no better than them. We also bring some degree of hypocritical and distracted and half-hearted worship to God. You may be even feeling a certain coldness and a hardness today because of something that happened this week or because of some sin that you have been unable to let go of. And yet God Still, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, calls you his servant. If we took an analysis of just this last week and tried to brainstorm and write down every instance of sin that we had committed against our almighty and faithful God, and we looked at that list, that would probably be enough to crush our souls. But thanks be to God that he remains faithful when his people do not. This is what the Lord says, who made you, who chose you, if you're in Jesus Christ, who formed you from the womb. You were born again because of his work on your behalf. And he says to you today, fear not, my servant. Fear not, fear not upright. He has made you upright, brothers and sisters in Christ. He has, by the power of the Spirit, changed your disposition so that you're not like your old self, but you desire to live for Jesus Christ, even though you stumble all the way. You are Jeshurun in this way, whom God has chosen. God remains faithful when his people do not. And while we don't use that as an excuse to continue to be unfaithful, we rest in his mighty grace and mercy. Will you do that today? Will you rest in his mighty grace and mercy for you that he purchased on your behalf? Thank God he remains faithful when his people do not. He does what he does. The second thing that he does in this passage is that he saves many. He saves many. Let's look at verses three through five. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. So here's why Jacob, his servant, Israel, whom he had chosen, same group of people, didn't need to fear. In this case, it was because he was going to pour water on the thirsty land. Now, living in the desert, it actually doesn't take us a whole lot of imagination to appreciate this picture. You can see and imagine out there, just even in our backyard, the arid landscape, the complete dryness of it, and the significance of water being poured on that thirsty land, right? He was gonna pour water on that thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. And then he explains what he means, second part of verse three. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, right? So we now, living in 2024, have the benefit Of New Testament revelation so we already have if you know your Bible well you're already thinking okay I know what this is talking about right but first when you're being a good Bible interpreter you want to try to first understand what did it mean for them the revelation of what we know in the New Testament was hidden in types and shadows and revealed later in Jesus Christ so let's first think about what that means what that meant to them to read I will pour my spirit upon your offspring well, it's, it's compared in parallelism with water being poured out on thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. So the idea is, whereas water being poured on a thirsty land is a good physical picture of the water being nourished, the spirit being poured out on the offspring of Israel and Judah is the Lord essentially watering, if you will, A dry and thirsty people spiritually speaking does that make sense (laughs) I will pour my spirit upon your offspring in this spiritual desert that Judah found themselves in God was going to pour his spirit upon them remember what this spiritual desert looked like they were tired of God they were weary of him They were offering him not their best, but the minimum requirement that they thought would appease God. And God was going to pour his spirit upon them and give them new spiritual life. And then in parallel, and my blessing on your descendants, he was going to give them spiritual revival. And then in verse four, we see that it wasn't just going to be specifically for that people, but that there would be be growth in this. It wouldn't just be a, spiritual growth from the remnant but that this would spread among them and not just among them but even people outside of them okay so in verse 4 they shall spring up among the grass some translations say something more along the lines of they shall spring up like grass and um there's good textual reasons to think that that's probably what's more in view here than that the people are spring up among the grass but rather they spring up like grass. And um, I have some personal experience with, um, with grass like this. Because when we first moved into our house, the backyard was just basically desert, just basically wilderness. And we thought that's all that that's back there. But then springtime came, monsoon season, and suddenly it was like this lush uh, field that our little shih tzu was like pouncing in. And it was, it was so strange to see the stark contrast between the desert that was there and then all of this grass. Mind you, it was fescue, so we didn't want it, right? But, but actually, when you have to remove fescue, you start to realize there's a lot of grass back here, okay? And it, it comes out of nowhere. It wasn't like it grew over months, it just appeared one day. And that's the picture that we're seeing here. God would pour out the Spirit upon their offspring, water on this, Spiritually speaking, thirsty land. And the offspring and the descendants would spring up like grass. They would just rise up. And also like willows by flowing streams. Willows are trees that they really flourish in uh, heavily watered areas. And um, similarly, willows don't take a long time to grow. They just kind of spring up. That's the idea here. They would spring up like willows by flowing streams And this one will say, verse five says, this one will say, I am the Lord's, I am Yahweh's. Now, um, it's possible that this is talking more about revival, right, so people who were previously hardened towards God among Judah and Israel saying, or rather reinstating their commitment to Yahweh. But a lot of commentaries kind of point this rather to being more about proselytizing, In other words, non-Jews becoming Jewish. And I I think that there's a good point that they're making there in understanding it this way, especially when it talks about um, identifying with Jacob and writing on their hand, Yahweh's, and and naming himself by the name of Israel. So that's kind of the way that we're going to look at it. Um, Absolutely, revival here, but also growth, evangelism, not only spiritual growth, from within, but also people coming in to see and, and to declare allegiance to Yahweh. So this is interesting, because this one will say, I am Yahweh's. In other words, I am God's, because Yahweh was, is the name of the true God and Israel's God. So someone would, would potentially leave their Babylonian gods or their otherwise pagan gods and leave them and identify instead with a true God of the Bible. What a wonderful promise was, that was being given here. Another will call in the name of Jacob. So not only would they identify with God, but they would also identify with God's people. They'd also identify with Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's or Yahweh's. In other words, I belong to him. Now, whether that's by ink or by Otherwise inscription, we don't know. But the idea here is this person is now marking themselves with God's name. Now, it could be talking about affection. It could be talking about ownership. But when it comes to God, those two things are not mutually exclusive, okay? If you are owned by God, you have a deep affection for him. And if you are one who has a deep affection for him, You're owned by him. These are the very same things. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and he will name himself by the name of Israel. Again, he's going to identify himself specifically with the people of God, identifying himself with the name of Israel. Going back to verse three. This is all pointing forward to a partial fulfillment so we do see a partial fulfillment of this in a couple of ways there is revival among the people of god once they're taken out of exile and brought back into jerusalem okay so ezra and nehemiah they lead the people into rebuilding the temple and then after they rebuild the temple they have this tremendous feast in worshiping and praising god for what he's done they celebrate the feast of tabernacles and they are on an all-time spiritual high in terms of recent years. And then once the walls are built, the people gather all together in one place and they tell Ezra, Ezra, read to us the law of God. And it's a beautiful account. They stand there for hours, simply listening to God's law being told to them and being explained to them. And they raise their hands in worship and praise of God. again we see a beautiful example of revival and the fulfillment of it in that time. Ezra also implies that there were people there who were not Jews, Jews, but came and took on the Jewish faith, believing in their God. So another fulfillment as well of saying that there would be people who would abandon their old religion and turn to God, which by the way was, was strange for the time it shows the almighty power of God because the people who were leaving their gods were going to a God who was mocked and laughed at by everybody else. Like the the Jewish people were not in favor among other people, right? So for somebody to leave their identification with their gods and their nation, and instead go to Yahweh and identify as an Israelite, that's only a work of God, okay? so. This is a partial fulfillment of it. But alas, consistent with the rest of Israel's history, this revival does not last. Even in the book of Nehemiah, where it accounts how they rebuilt the walls and they worshiped God for days. He also accounts for the fact that not too long after that, Nehemiah finds the the people violating the Lord's day, the Sabbath, very, um, blatantly and the leaders are just allowing it. And then Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament uh, pictures how um, how they were essentially withholding the tithes and offerings that, that were due to God and and that, and that they weren't worshipping God the way that they should have. So it didn't take very long for them to go back into some sort of spiritual apostasy. And just imagine being an angel watching all of this unfold, okay? First Peter says about the mysteries of Christ that these are things upon which angels long to look. In other words, we can, we can probably safely assume angels didn't know everything about the mystery of Jesus Christ until everybody else saw the mystery of Christ revealed. But before Christ is revealed, they're watching this situation. They're saying, oh, God is awesome. He is delivering his people once again. Look at him, deliver the people out of Babylon. Ugh, oh, they're worshiping him. This is great. And then they watch the people fall back into their old ways again. And then after they fall back into their old ways, God stops sending the people prophets. He stops sending new scriptures. There's just 400 years between Malachi and the arrival of Christ where there is just nothing And if I'm an angel, I'm like, okay, what's he gonna do? What's he gonna do? And then is revealed to us how he actually fully and finally fulfills this. Enter into history, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life that Israel couldn't live, that we couldn't live, who taught us how to rightly understand and interpret the law of God in the way that we would love him with everything that we have and love our neighbors as ourselves and then went and died on the cross for sinners like you and me and then rose from the grave victorious over sin and death but he doesn't even stop there praise God that he didn't just die for us rise again and say you figure the rest out what does he do instead he pours water on the thirsty land. He p- pours streams on the dry ground and in a greater way than we saw then, we see now that he has poured his spirit upon their offspring. He has poured his blessing on their descendants. And we see that in the New Testament when Jesus and the Father send the Holy Spirit to these people. And we have to understand, we are experiencing the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, in a way that the old covenant people did not. The Spirit worked among them, but under the new covenant, the Spirit works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The revival that he gives us is permanent and ongoing. We have been given new life, new affections, a desire to obey the law of God, not merely out of obligation by way of a written code, but by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. This is the delightful fulfillment that we're seeing in the new covenant. Not just that, but we're seeing an incredible growth of the church as well. Whereas they did see some proselytes come and turn to Judaism, we see the power of the Holy Spirit work in the church in such a way that, as in Acts, with one sermon, thousands of people are saved. There was no personal, selfish benefit to them in terms of social capital or political gain to po- to claim to be a Christian. These days, it's it's a little trickier because Christianity is still, in some places, the favored religion, and if you want to run for political office. It helps sometimes in some places to be a Christian. But back then, you turn to Jesus Christ, you were almost literally picking up your cross and following him. You were, you were liable to being put to death by your own family. And yet with one sermon, thousands of people walk into that. Another sermon is preached, thousands more walk into that, all who were appointed to eternal life. This again is a greater fulfillment of what's being said. The Spirit falls on people as the gospel is being preached, and they repent and believe, and we have seen a countless many throughout history turning to Jesus Christ, leaving behind the gods of their parents, forsaking the favor that they could get from their nation to trust in Jesus Christ. Martyrdom is not stopped. I've heard that there has been more martyrdom in the last century than there has been throughout all of the rest of church history. People do it because God is the one who is saving. God does what he does. He remains faithful when his people do not. He saves many. And he does these things, number two, because he is who he is. Because he is who he is. He does what he does because he is who he is. And he's about to break out and explain to Israel and to us who he is. And there are six characteristics that we're going to quickly go through. And the first is that he is the king. He is the king. Verse 6. Thus says Yahweh, the king of Israel. Now, we're going to go through these quickly because these are themes, again, that we have seen in, in past passages. But... Like we said last time, if God is repeating them, we need to hear it. That's why he's repeating it for emphasis over and over again. And he says to them again, I am the king, I am your king. And he wasn't their king because they chose him to be king. They didn't elect him to be king. He is their king because he's their king. He made them. He has the rule and right over them. And yet in the context of this passage, he's not bringing up that he's the king simply in the sense of therefore you should obey me. This is meant to be an encouragement to them. He's bringing up the fact that he is their king because kings fight for their people. Kings protect their people. That's what good kings do. And God is the perfect king. And so if you are If you are in exile in Babylon under the oppressive rule of an emperor who has none of your best interests in mind, would it be comforting to you to be reminded that Yahweh is your king? And that he's going to fight for you? That he's going to deliver you? That deliverance and and kingship are very closely connected. Right Before kings, there were judges. And judges were not there simply to enforce God's law, but they were also there to deliver God's people. And then when kings arrived, that's what they were called to do. And God is the king, the perfect king. Jesus Christ is your king. Revelation says that he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And, and, when, and when we hear that he's our king this morning, yes, hear, obey him, but also hear, he will fight for you and he will deliver you. He came the first time as the suffering servant. When he comes again, it will be as your conquering king to come back and deliver you. He is who he is. He is the king. Letter B, he is the redeemer. He is the redeemer. Thus says the Lord, the king of Israel, and his redeemer. In other words, Israel's redeemer. And again, just... Just by way of review, someone who redeemed you was someone who paid the price for your freedom. And in this context, he says that he gave up Egypt and Cush and Seba for them. He redeemed them with a price of greater nations. That's what he paid for them. Because as Isaiah 43 says, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you people in exchange for your life. He was their redeemer who loved them and therefore paid whatever price it cost to free them and guarantee them safety out of their Babylonian exile. Jesus Christ is your redeemer. He has been the one whom God has sent to redeem you if you believe in him. And what makes our redeemer unique is that he didn't merely pay the price with something or someone else, he paid the price with himself. He is both the redeemer and the ransom price. He exchanged himself to free us. Now, earlier today, I, I, I noticed that the four songs that we sung uh, before service, they all mentioned Christ's blood. Are you washed in the blood? There's a fountain filled with blood, uh, right? And, and if you're here for the first time, you might think these people are weird singing about blood all the time. We are weird, we'll grant you that, okay? But we're not going to stop singing about that because it was, it was the blood of Christ that purchased us from our slavery to sin. It is, it is the blood of Christ that cleanses us from the dirtiness of sin. That is what it cost to redeem us, brothers and sisters in Christ. It wasn't just Egypt or Cush or Seba. It was the son of God himself and his life. His blood was poured out for us that he would redeem us. Does that not comfort you to think that he's gonna get you through to the very end? He paid for you. He's not gonna let that payment go to waste. He is the king, he is the redeemer. Letter C, he is the Lord of armies. He is the Lord of armies. It says in verse six, thus says the Lord, the king of Israel, and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of hosts. We read this word hosts a lot, but do we, Stop to think about what it actually means, right? What, what does it mean that God is Yahweh of hosts or the Lord of hosts? We might think that it's just talking about a lot of angels, but really what this word hosts mean means is armies. It's referring to God's armies, okay? Um, and by the way, when we sing a mighty fortress is our God, whenever you see that word, the Lord Sabaoth, his name, It just means Lord of hosts, okay? So remember this when we're singing that later. So he is Yahweh of hosts. In that song, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, it rightly acknowledges that Satan is greater, more powerful than we are. And the reason why that Satan is more powerful than we are is that as creatures, angels are higher than humans. Uh, Hebrews talks about how Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels okay? so, so Satan is more powerful than us because he is an angel angels are incredibly powerful creatures in, if you, in the book of Exodus one angel is the one who carried out the plague and wiped out every firstborn of Egypt okay? when, when David pridefully took that census it was one angel who was enacting the judgment of God on the people, 70,000 people died with this. In 2 Kings, to deliver his people, God sends an angel who goes to the Assyrian camp and wipes out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So angels are, in in and of them, their own right, powerful beings. And God has armies of them. He has armies of them. He doesn't even need them, But he uses them as a display of his great might. Of these mighty angels, God is the God of hosts. He is the God of armies. And just imagine that you are a conquered people in a strange land with a hostile emperor. And the reason you're there is because the Babylonian army sieged Jerusalem and defeated you. Would it be encouraging to be reminded that your God is a God who has armies. Jesus is this Lord of hosts. He says in Matthew, when when Peter cuts off that guy's ear, well-meaning but wrong, Jesus tells Peter, do you not know that I could pray to my father and he would at once send me 12,000 angels to deliver me? 12,000? You don't even need 12,000, but that's what he was confident his father would send him. And in Revelation, he is pictured being surrounded by heaven's armies in his return. Matthew also talks about his return with his angels. Knowing that Christ, our king, is surrounded by so great an army on your behalf, does that not encourage you in this, your exile, in this, your Babylon? He is coming back with heaven's hosts for you. He is the Lord of armies. D, letter D. He is eternal. He is eternal. He says in verse six, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, in his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Okay? So the picture here is that there's no one before him and there's no one after him. It really is kind of inaccurate to say that there's no one before God because there was not a time where God started to exist. God has always been and he always will be. But the idea here behind saying that he is the first and he is the last essentially means that he is eternal. He's not bound by space or time. So that, that tells us at least a couple of things. Number one, he is almighty over all of this creation. He can take Judah out of Babylonian exile and it would be nothing for him. He is the first and he is the last. It also speaks to the fact that he already knows what happens. So when he tells them, you're coming out, he already knows that as a fact. There there isn't just like, hey, I'm, I'm hopeful that this is going to happen. It's already written in history. This is going to happen to you. That is a comfort for them to hear that their God is the eternal God. He is the first and he is the last. And in light of that, they can know that what he is saying to them, they can have full confidence in it. Jesus Christ, getting the theme here, is the first and the last, okay? In Revelation 22, 19, he says, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So don't listen to those haters that say that Jesus never claimed to be God. What kind of man says, I am the first and I am the last, the beginning and the end? Only God himself can say that. And Jesus, our God, reminds us in our time of exile and suffering, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows how it ends. He wrote it. He's declared to us what he is going to do because he is the first and the last, okay? So he is eternal. And by the way, um, I wanna say it was 1899, I wasn't there, but they, someone started to publish red letter Bibles, red letter New Testaments, red letter Bibles, and that's when they wanted to highlight the words of Jesus. I don't know what their motivation was with that, but it has a danger to it, because sometimes that might make us think that these words are more important than the rest of the Bible, okay? But Jesus is God. And so if you want a red letter Bible, just turn all of the letters red, okay? (laughs) So these are all his words. And so when when God says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God." That's the savior speaking too, okay? So he is the Lord of armies. He is eternal. He is who he is. Letter E, he is unique. He is unique. I want to define that word real quick because people use the word unique to mean like rare. Like if I were to say, Pastor Vladimir and Pastor Corey are unique, that would actually be an incorrect use of the word. Unique is one. There can only be one unique thing in a, in a category. Does this make sense to you? It's not like rare, there's only one. And so God is unique. The last part of verse six says this, besides me, there is no God. Let's keep reading. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Besides me, verse six says, there is no God. Now, hopefully I don't get myself in trouble for revealing to you that I watched some Marvel shows. Maybe some of you are more sanctified than I and don't have fun. But in the show Moon Knight, uh, the premise behind this superhero Moon Knight is that he's essentially an avatar of an Egyptian god. Okay? Now, the fact that, that he has a god on his side is actually not enough because there are other gods in Egyptian mythology that work against each other. Okay? So for him, despite the fact that he has a god backing him up, victory for him is not guaranteed. There is still tension because there is another God that is actively working against Moon Knight's God. With a true and living God, that is not the case. God has no rivals. The beauty of the Battle of Armageddon is, it's it's so magnificent. There's so much drama of Satan amassing this huge army against God and then Christ returns and it's over. There's no 48 hour grueling battle where good and evil are trying to work it out. When he returns, it's done. And his enemies will be put under his feet. He is unique in this way. Besides him, there is no God. And in verse seven, he asks, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Okay? So again. He's asking, who is like me? If there is another God out there, he's saying rhetorically, rise up. I'd love to meet you. I would love for you to prove to me that you are also a God. And he says, set it before me. This is language that we're used to now, by now in Isaiah, this type of challenge to these false gods. And then he says, since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen So ever since God had formed Israel, he has revealed to them time and time again what he would do, and then he would do it, and then he would explain to them how he had done it. Remember this, right? This was something that God did, and no one else could replicate that. The false gods of this world, whether it's the imagined ones or demons themselves, cannot replicate what God does, because there is no God but him. No one can prophesy like God does. Demons cannot prophesy like God does. Only God is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, can tell you anything that happens in history. So he challenges them, anyone, declare what is to come, what will happen. And then in verse eight, he tells his people, fear not, fear not, nor be afraid. Those two kind of seem like the same words, fear not, nor be afraid. Other translations, I think helpfully say, fear not, do not dread, fear not, do not tremble. They're related words, but they're being used for emphasis. God's people need to have zero fear. Why? Have I not told you from of old and declared it? Have I not told you things in the past and you have actually seen them come to pass? And have I not told you now that I would free you out of Babylonian captivity? You you are my witnesses, he says in verse eight. You have seen me do this time and time again. Is there a God besides me, he asks in verse eight? And of course, the answer is no, there's not. It's only him. It's only him and this God is in three persons. And our redeemer is the second person of the Trinity who is our savior and God, Jesus Christ. Who is like him? Let other supposed Christs rise up and prove themselves. And by the way, people have throughout history claimed to be the Christ. I've met two of them at our front door. (laughs) This is real, right? There is none like him. But if there were rivals of him, let them declare it. People of God, fear not, nor be afraid. Has Christ not told us what he would do? Has he not revealed to us in his, through his apostles what he will do? Did he not tell us that he will come back for us? And is he not our almighty king who not only has written it from eternity, but will surely do it in our time. Not necessarily our lives here, but in this age. In this age, he will return and he will redeem his people. He is unique. There is none like him. He is the only God. And F, letter F, he is a rock. He is a rock. The last couple of phrases in verse eight, there is no rock. I know not any. So that follows the question, is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this picture of God as rock, especially in the Psalms. He is a rock. He is sturdy. He is dependable. He is strong. Unlike unlike sand, rock is powerful, right? And And also, as you read the Psalms, you see that rocks are are often juxtaposed next to fortresses and protection. So rocks also offer protection. And there is only one rock who can do that. There is only one, and he is God. God says, I know not any. I don't know any of any other rocks besides me. And if God is who he is and knows everything, then we can know for sure there is no rock. He is the only one. And Jesus Christ is our rock. He says that anyone who listens to his teaching and hears it, it's as if they build their house on a rock. And more than that, he is our cornerstone. He is the first one laid down upon which all of us are built around him and on him into this living house. He is our rock. He is the sturdy one whom we need. He is our fortress and our protection. To whom else would we go? Who else do we tend to run to? What else do we tend to run to to soothe us in our darkest moments? Run to Christ. He is our rock. So let's review. God does what he does. He remains faithful when his people do not. He saves many, and he does what he does because he is who he is. He is the king, he is the redeemer, he is the Lord of armies, he is eternal, he is unique, and he is a rock. What then shall we do with this information? First, be grateful for the fact that even when you're unfaithful, God is faithful to you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, If you believe in Jesus Christ, all your sins are already forgiven. He holds it not against you in any way. He has blotted out your transgressions and he will thus continue to be faithful to you even when you're not. What shall we say then? Should we be unfaithful? May it never be. Respond in gratitude to his faithfulness by striving to be faithful to him. We should also share the gospel more. Where do you get that from this passage, Ed? If it's true that God saves many, and if it's true that God uses the proclamation of the gospel to accomplish those ends, why would we not share the gospel with our neighbors? Why would we not bring the word of Christ to our friends and our families and in our workplaces and in the marketplaces and even to Indonesia? Why would we not? if we believe that he saves many. We should also bow the knee to our king and have full confidence that our king is going to deliver us. Our redeemer is going to redeem us. We should have hope in this reality that Christ is the Lord of armies. And we can have great and perfect confidence that he's going to do what he's going to do because he is the beginning and the end. There is none like him. He is our rock and our refuge. Will you place your trust in Jesus Christ today? I'm not only talking to the unbelievers right now. I'm talking to you too, believer in Jesus Christ. Will you place your trust in this rock today? There's another alternate ending to that story I wrote earlier. You want to hear it? After hearing his father say, As long as a man is king, this is how it will be. The boy looked down at the floor, dejected. What kind of life is this to live, the boy asked. Do not fret, my boy, the father smiled, for over this king is a king of kings. And while he too is a man, he's not merely a man, but he is our God. He is good and almighty, and he always keeps his word. The boy perked up. Will he save us from the king? The father nodded and said, without a doubt. The end, that's nicer. (laughs) God does what he does because he is who he is. Have faith that he will do what he will do because he is who he is. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you would reveal these things to people like us, frail, ignoble, unworthy. We didn't deserve any of this, O oh Lord. And yet you continue to encourage us in our exile, in this, our Babylon, that you will bring us all the way home. And we pray that our, that our belief in this would simply stem from knowing who you are. Help us to grow in the knowledge of who you are, that daily our assurance would be strengthened. Because it's not about us, it's about who you are. And you will accomplish Everything that you desire. So help us to place our trust in you daily, O oh God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.